Heart transplants are an amazing thing, aren't they? I mean, think about that. God in His grace, in His common grace, has gifted men with, with great knowledge to be able to take someone's heart out and to put another one in and they live. I remember when I was young that that was a relatively new thing and not many people survived it. But now it's rather common. Medical technology has advanced by God's grace again to the point where people can get new to them new hearts. Live longer where they would have where they would have died. That's amazing to me and if you've ever seen that and see when they shock the heart and this new heart Starts beating again. I mean, it's just incredible. It's amazing. A witness to God and His His glory. Getting a new physical heart is one thing, but we see a different sort of heart surgery in the text that we have before us today. We have a greater surgeon performing a greater surgery, giving a woman a new heart. Not the physical heart, but the core of her being. A new heart in fulfillment of His promises. A heart that trusts Him and loves Him and seeks to live for Him. Lydia is given a new heart so that she believes the gospel. See, she didn't believe and then get a new heart. She, she, and we'll talk about that. She's given a new heart so that she believes the gospel. Like I said earlier, we're in the midst of or getting really at the beginning of the second missionary journey. We've seen Paul and, and Silas and, and now Timothy's going with them. But we've seen them come up through the cities they had ministered to uh, in, in Galatia in that region. And now they're, they're launching out. They sought to go into Asia. God wouldn't let them. They sought to go north. He wouldn't let them. He's led them all the way to go now to Philippi in modern day Greece out of what is modern day Turkey, what was then <clears throat> Asia Minor. But they're going up with the, the gospel. They're going on gospel mission. They're seeking to have God use them to do what He's already done in the missionary, the first missionary journey, is to reach people with the gospel, to see people converted, and through that, to see new and, and faithful churches planted. And today, we're really, we're really just going to focus on one little part. We'll go through the text. But what we see today is about the gospel and open hearts and kind of how people are converted. So the main point I want you to see from this text as we look at the human element, as we look at the divine element, is that in order for anyone to believe in Christ, they must hear the gospel. That lines up with Romans 10, right? That's the human element. We must take the gospel. And God must open their heart. That's the divine element. That's the sovereign element. We must preach the gospel and God must work. His Spirit must work through that to grant life and bring unbelievers to faith. Lost people to salvation. Rebels to submission to God and faith in Christ. So in order for anyone, and we see Lydia as exhibit A of this, in order for anyone to believe in Christ, they must hear the gospel and God must open their heart. Look first at the human element with me. The, the gospel reaches Philippi. Human beings in obedience to God and in His commission are taking the good news of Jesus Christ to a new area. 
They are, have beautiful feet, Romans 10, quoting the Old Testament, who are bringing good news and they're, they're, they're coming up into Macedonia, modern day Greece. They're coming up into Philippi. But I'll read it again in case we were not, not there. So setting sail from Troas. Let me get the map up and kind of do it that way. They, they set sail from the port going over into Macedonia, the voyage through Sumatras and Neapolis, and they came to the city of Philippi. So if you see the orange arrow in our map, they didn't know. They, they were praying and seeking and moving. God wouldn't let them go into Asia, wouldn't let them go into Bithynia up this way. And you can hear that. Listen to the sermon from last week on that. They come down to Troas. Paul has a vision. Now they're going over to Macedonia. And the first city they're really going to stop in as they travel through is a major city in that section of Macedonia, Philippi. And we're familiar with that, right? Because we have a book in the New Testament to the Philippians. The Philippians. <clears throat> so, they're going up into Philippi and they're going not just on a tour. It's not a short-term missions trip. It's not you know, a fun venture, although at times I guess it was, it was neat. But they're going on mission to take the gospel. So it says, Philippi is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. It, enjoy, colony. it enjoys special favor. It's, it's maybe uh, what would be thought of as a little Rome formed by Roman citizens with the blessing of the empire. It's a multicultural city. Worship of the emperor. Worship of the many gods. There's, there's trade routes that go through Philippi. So it is a great place to go plant the gospel and see the gospel go out from Philippi. But they don't know what the Lord's going to do. But they're going in obedience. They go to this leading city. They go to this district of Macedonia. They are being led by the Lord. We saw that last week and we see that he's leading them up into this region. And we'll see where he takes them from here. But say they go to Philippi, which is a leading city in that district. It's a Roman colony. And it says, we remained in this city for some days. Now, we don't know how many. It just says for some days. Was it a lot of some days or a little some days? I, they were there for a while. And so he's going to give us some detail. And Luke is giving us eyewitness detail. Luke has been proved to be a historian of first rank. And he's given us eyewitness detail on what happened. So it said they spent some days in Philippi. They're getting a lay of the land, we'll see. Because they found out where a place of prayer might be. Because you know the Paul's pattern is to go into a city, find out where the synagogue is, go to the synagogue and tell the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah and has fulfilled the old covenant and preach the gospel to them. So they're in Philippi, they're searching around, they get some information uh, and they move forward from there. So it says, um, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, it, it, this seems to be, it's what they've been told. Where do people meet? Where do, where do Jews meet? Where, where does worship take place? They, they're wanting to find people to talk to about Jesus. And this doesn't mean that they haven't witnessed in the city as they were there, but there's a particular focus here. So they're going to the place of prayer with a particular purpose, just like they did when they went into the synagogues to preach Jesus. Evidently, in Philippi, at this point, there's no synagogue to go into. 
But they've, 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 they, they have some intelligence. They've found out where some people are gathered for prayer. And so that's where they're going. So on the seventh day Sabbath, on the Sabbath when you would expect the Jews to gather and the God-fearers to gather and the proselytes to gather, and we've talked about that, they, they find a place they think. He says, we were supposed. There was a place of prayer. They went out there. Certainly there was. And he says, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So they've gone, they've gone all the way up through on the second missionary journey. God has led them all the way to Philippi and through their sort of poking around in the city, they found out about this place of prayer. So they are there where this group of women is gathered. But they're not sitting and just listening. They're talking. They're fulfilling the human element. They are taking the gospel to Philippi and into the city and from the city, out of the city, into this place of prayer. I'm sure they've prayed about this. They're, 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 they're purposeful about it and they're seeking to witness. So it says, they, we sat down and spoke to the women. Notice plural. The women who had come together. They spoke to the women who were in that place. They've taken the gospel to the people. So that, that's just in a nutshell, the gospel coming to the city of Philippi, coming to this group of women gathered, what is called a place of prayer. And they, they're there and they're speaking to those women. And we know from Paul's pattern that we've seen in the other missionary journeys and throughout Acts that his speaking is about Jesus. He's sharing the gospel. He's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the messianic expectations. He's showing that Jesus is the one that we must trust for salvation. Now watch. So we go from the gospel being taken to Philippi in 11 through 13. The human element of being faithful to deliver the gospel. To take the gospel into this region. Now we have the divine element. And this is really the focus that I want to focus on this morning. The gospel not only reaches Philippi, point one, but the gospel reaches Lydia. The gospel reaches Lydia. Look what happens here. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. A certain woman. One woman. She was there. She was listening. And something is happening. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira in, in Asia. And there was evidently a big Jewish segment in Thyatira that worked pr producing you know, the purple dye that, and, and making purple garments which were very expensive. And she's, she's come from there. She's in Philippi. She's a businesswoman. Look, it says, Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. A seller of purple goods. That's interesting, isn't it? Why purple goods? Purple was very expensive. It was So she was a seller of fabric to the wealthy. Because purple was a very expensive, we still call it royal purple sometimes, right? Very expensive garments because it took like 8,000 mollusks, or I think clam, to produce one gram of dye. Purple dye. That's a lot. That's a lot of clams to pick up. 
So you can see why it was very expensive. But she's coming from a region where the, there was a, a community of Jews who sort of specialized in this. And she's now in Philippi having learned that trade. And she's taken that trade to Philippi. Don't have a lot of details of that. It just says she's a seller of purple goods, of fine fabrics, of fabrics that the wealthy would buy. She's probably a woman of some wealth. I would imagine she's successful. But it says this about her, just throws it in, who was a worshiper of God. A God-fearer. This, this term right here is talking about someone who in that culture has rejected polytheism, has rejected the, the, the panoply of gods, and has focused in on the Jewish God. Has focused in on worshiping the Jewish God. Right? Just like Cornelius. Think about Cornelius. And we know he wasn't converted yet. He was converted when Peter preached the gospel. But in God's work in his life, he had rejected polytheism. He had rejected the many gods and he was, had adopted the Jewish God. He was, he was not a proselyte. He was a God-fearer because he wasn't circumcised. He hadn't gone the, the whole way with the situation. She similarly is a worshiper of God. She has God's providence in her life. She has seen the foolishness of, of polytheism and all of the gods and emperor worship. And she has through whatever influences growing up in family or whatever, she has become one who is seeking to follow Yahweh. She's religious in a Jewish way. It's a good way to put that. But she's not converted yet. Just like Cornelius. She needed the gospel. See, the gospel has never been to Philippi. Now, the Old Testament and Judaism and all of that, that certainly has been there. And that's kind of what she knows and what she's under. Think of an old covenant worshiper who needs the New Testament. You see 3,000 of them saved on the day of Pentecost. But it says something very interesting here. That she was a worshiper of God. Okay. She was religious. She had some light from the old covenant about God and who he was. But now watch this. That's, Paul is certainly probably talking about that, but he's showing how the, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the Messiah who was to come. And salvation that was pictured there is found in him. Now watch what happens. So Lydia opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia opened her heart her own heart, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Is my translation bad? The Lord, God, the only true and living God, the one who has sent Paul there with the gospel to preach the gospel through the preaching of that gospel. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice what it doesn't say. The Lord opened their hearts. The Lord opened her heart. It was her time. That word for open means to cause someone to be willing to learn and evaluate fairly. Or to open someone's mind. God is opening her mind to the gospel to pay attention. Some of the other translations are God opened her heart to give heed to. God opened her heart to respond to. God opened her heart to accept what was being said 
by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Who Probably Paul is the major speaker though. Now watch. It says the Lord, we'll come back to that. That's really where I want to focus. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized. Think again about Cornelius. When Peter goes, he's convinced he needs to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He needs to go in their home not to call them unclean. And he goes in chapter 10 and preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And while he's preaching, they're converted. And they get the Spirit. And that's obvious. Notice none of that here. But while they're preaching, Cornelius and his household is converted. While Paul is preaching, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, to heed, to respond to, to believe the gospel. And then proving that she had you know, come to faith, it says, and after she was baptized. Baptized. Upon believing, she was baptized. Like Cornelius and his household. Upon believing the gospel, she was baptized. We assume, we know, at least in Paul's opinion, she has come to faith because there's no warrant for baptizing New Testament wise. There's no warrant for baptizing any but believers. She's converted. She's changed. She is becoming a woman of hospitality. She's going to be used greatly. Now listen, ladies, don't miss it. Who's the, the first convert in Philippi is a woman. This reminded me of Jesus when He went in Samaria. And the first person he reached was the Samaritan woman who then went out and witnessed and was used greatly. There's going to be a church in her house. We'll see that in verse 40 when we get there. But she was baptized upon believing the gospel. And after she was baptized and her household. Don't you wish we had more details? A lot of discussion takes place on passages like this. Who was in the household? So one comes to faith, we just dip them all. No, like Cornelius' house and others where we do have details, it's believers. They believe the gospel. That spreads. God's at work. And they're baptized. This is not a sermon about baptism. In a sense. But that's all the detail we have. She was baptized and her household. They become believers. There'll be a church in their house. Now watch. She's, and I don't know that she wasn't before. She probably was. But she becomes very hospitable. Or she continues in it anyway. That was a Jewish thing. It was an Old Testament thing. She urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And messengers has come. They brought the gospel. She's been converted. She's filled with joy. And she's like, you've taken care of me. I'm going to take care of you. While you're in Philippi, you'll be staying at my house eating my fried chicken. <laughs> Beautiful picture of body life and love that's produced by the gospel. But I want to come back to the phrase, and as we think about application, I want to come back to this little statement that says, the Lord opened her heart. When you hear that something's been opened, what do you assume previously was true? It was closed. 
if I say Daniel opened the door to go, well, you can see it's closed. Something that is opened was previously closed. A door is sort of an illustration of that. God opened her mind so that she believed the gospel. And my question to you is, why did he have to open her mind? Why was that necessary? Why did God have to open Lydia's mind? This is an important thing. See, it's not prevenient grace or anything like that. There's not grace that's come before so that her heart's just now open and she on her own decides to believe in Jesus. It says, as they were speaking, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, to respond, to trust. The reason he had to open her heart is because it was closed. It was closed to the gospel. That's how we're born. Sure, she was religious. We resist God through religion just as well as non-religion. As far as she knew, she was probably being faithful and seeking. But God had to open her heart to the gospel because our natural inclination is to suppress the truth in favor of our own way. Her heart was closed, but God opened her heart. It was her day. Now that doesn't mean that another day wouldn't have been some of the other ladies' day. But in a group, in the women, this one particular woman had her heart opened to come to faith in Jesus. Reminded me of Jesus at uh, Pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5 where he goes in and there's a multitude of invalids. How many did he heal? One. We're uncomfortable with that, aren't we? He had the power to heal them all and yet he went in and he healed one. See, we have to let God be God. We have to trust him. We, have, we know what we know about him. He's righteous and holy and pure and he always does the right thing. And just like that, God like lasers in on Lydia. He knows what he's going to do in her and he knows what he's going to do through her. He knows what he's doing in the hearts of his evangelists as this happens. And he opens her heart because it had previously been closed. Those of you who are familiar with theological categories and reform theology, you know I'm talking about corruption, the original sin, depravity, total depravity. It's how we're born. Sin, the corruption. When Adam fell, he took us all with him. Everyone since Adam's fall has been born in sin, Psalm 51. David said he was born in sin. The children come from the womb lying and needing a Savior. As Vody Bauckham says, they're vipers and diapers and we don't want to believe it. That's a, just a mild chuckle. Because we see them and they're cute and they're beautiful and surely they're pure. And then they start talking. But even before that. Sin. The corruption inherited from Adam. We, we call it a sin nature. Fallenness permeates to the core of our being. To our very hearts. 
What is the Old Testament analogy of a lost heart? It's a heart of stone. What does that mean? It's not responsive to God. And he promises, and we'll see in a minute, to replace that heart. But first of all, I want to talk about what the heart is. Because when I, when I say heart in America, we start thinking about romance novels and stuff. Feelings. Heart is feelings, right? Separated, you know, we missed the gospel by 18 inches. I, truly, biblically, feelings are gut. We even still say that. It was like a gut punch when I heard that. But biblically, the heart is not the organ that pumps blood through the body. It's not simply the emotional center of our being. The heart is the core of our entire being. It's the center and soul of who we are. It, compri it comprises all of our thoughts, feelings, and actions. I have a picture that sort of puts that forward. Thank you for reminding me of that in that book the other day. Look at, biblically, the heart is the mind, the conscience, the will, and the passions, the feelings, the desires. All of that, biblically, is talking about the heart. And the person born without Christ, Lydia before God opened her heart, every child born into this world, every adult without Christ has a darkened mind, has a seared conscience, has a rebellious will, and has ungodly passions and feelings and desires. That's the biblical picture of what was true of Lydia and what is true of everyone before God opens the heart, changes the heart, gives a new heart, a pliable heart. But biblically, think about Proverbs. As a man thinks in his... See, the heart is a thing of thinking, not just feeling. A thing of believing. A thing of deciding. It's the core of our being. And when we're born into this world, we're born this way. Darkened mind, seared conscious, and that gets worse as we sin and reject God's ways and things we used to feel guilty about, we don't feel guilty about no more because we've, we've sort of seared it over even more. Rebellious will, seeking self instead of God in His ways and ungodly passions, our desires are self-focused and not God-honoring, not God-glorifying. That's the biblical picture of the heart and the effects of sin. The Bible says that our hearts have been radically corrupted by sin. When you hear the term original sin, it's not talking about the first sin. It's talking about the consequences of the first sin. Theologically, the category of original sin is the guilt and corruption we inherit from Adam. And yes, that's a New Testament concept. Read Romans 5. It, we talk in the... It's, Boil it down. We're born lost. That's how Southerners talk. We need a Savior. We're not born right with God and lose it. This is the concept of total depravity. Here's a um, definition. I think I have a slide on this. I might have missed it. There it is. Since the fall, everyone is born morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, and is apart from grace, utterly unable to choose to turn to Christ in faith for salvation. And that's just a statement of the biblical picture. And if you grab that, if you own that, you won't struggle with the rest. Because we're born morally separated from God, suppressing the truth, resisting God. We're enslaved to sin. Apart from grace, we're utterly unable to turn to God, to choose the good, 
to follow Jesus. The Bible says that our hearts have been radically corrupted by sin. Let me give you a few verses. Jeremiah 17, 9. Look at Jeremiah's estimation. God inspiring Jeremiah, talking about the heart. This is the way we're born. This is the heart apart from grace and before grace. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That sounds like a problem, doesn't it? You, if you ever see a meme or something on Facebook that says, all you need to do is follow your heart. That's really bad advice. Really, really bad. Because our hearts are turned inward, selfish, you know, seeking our own pleasure, things like that. The heart is deceitful. It, what does that mean? It lies to us. We're born with lying hearts. It's deceit. Now watch this. He magnifies it above everything, above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can grasp how sick it is? That's a serious, that's how we're born. Born in sin, a lot of other ways to say it. Radical corruption, corruption that reaches all the way to the heart. By the way, that's what total depravity means. The entirety of our being has been infected by sin. Not that we're as bad as we possibly could be. We're as lost as we possibly could be. But believe God. Don't believe me. And if you get mad, get mad at God, not me. Because this is what he says. Look at Ephesians. We'll go New Testament. Look at how Paul talks about using Gentiles here as talking about unbelievers. Writing to predominantly Gentiles and, you know, don't continue to pursue the lifestyle you had. But in Ephesians 4, 17 to 18, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as, you could say, the rest of the Gentiles, as the Gentiles do. You must no longer, as a believer, you must no longer walk as the unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. Their thinking has, is futile, Romans 1. They're darkened. Look at this. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Notice the core has been impacted so that it affects the life. Alienating us from the life of God. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's. 4 and 3 and 4. He's talking, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now watch this. This is, this is tough language, but it's true language. In their case, the God of this world. Who is that? Say it louder. Thank you. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of, God, of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen, before I came to faith, I in no way thought I had anything to do with Satan or that he in any way had anything to do with me. But the, the fact of the matter is blinded by evil, by my own heart first, right? But look at this, active forces keeping us away that God overcomes in His grace. Now watch this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. There's so many other verses I could quote to show you total depravity. I just want to give you a glimpse of a few of them. And what has the, the wonder, the glory of what has happened to Lydia and what has happened to us if we've come to faith. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person. What does that mean? It's how we're born. Just naturally speaking, without grace, without the Spirit, this is how we're born. 
and how we exist if we don't know Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And I remember that. That's foolishness, right? I remember thinking that. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You, you, until you're born of the Spirit, you can't even see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Now, look in Romans 3.11. I know I'm moving fast, but we'd be here till 2 o'clock if I don't. Paul is summing up the case against Jew and Gentile, showing that both are under sin. And this is one of the things that he says in chapter 3. I'll encourage you to go read the rest of the chapter where he says there's none good, no, not one. Right? Look at this. No one understands. And look at this. No one seeks for God. Apart from grace, left to ourselves, in our natural state, none seeks to live for the glory of God and honor Him and sacrifice for that. None seeks God. If any does seek God, it's because God is at work in them. If they seek the true and living God. We seek all kinds of false gods that we can control, make us happy, serve our agenda. No one seeks God apart from grace. That's, I, that's in your Bible. It's in yours too, if you want to look it up. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Now let's let, let, let Jesus sum it up. We believe Him, right? In John chapter 3, Jesus says this, This is the judgment. The light, that's Him, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Our problem is a love problem when we're born. We're not born loving God. We're not born loving His light. We're born loving ourselves and our sin. I remember being a young person and hearing the gospel and thinking, I'll have time for that when I am old. I was presuming. God is gracious. But right now I'm having too much fun. I thought I was having fun. Playing in a mud hole. Jesus said people's problem is their love is misplaced. They don't love God. They don't love His light. They love darkness. And they love evil deeds. So watch what Jesus says. This is talking about all sinners. This is not a special group. People who are born into this world without Jesus. This is true of every one of us. No, more, no, no matter if we dress up in a suit and go to church every Sunday. Or if we're in the bars all day, every day or whatever else in between. Outside of Jesus, people love darkness. Therefore, they won't come to the light. And yet Lydia has come to the light. God overcame that nature. So Lydia left to herself in her natural, natural condition would never truly repent and trust Christ. And neither would we. Why? Why? I'm not saying none of you have trusted Christ. You have, and it's because God's been at work with His grace. But we don't come to Christ in our natural condition, in our lost condition, because we don't want to. I want to give you a little visual. Maybe to wake you up. I don't know. But I'm going to put this on this side. 
For those of you on this side of the room who can't see it, I'm putting steak over here. Which one of those you think I'm going to choose? <laughs> Why? I hate kale. <laughs> kale is dirt cabbage. Kale. <laughs> I don't care how you fix it. I don't care what you do to it. Nasty. Just like Newman said about broccoli, it is vile weed. I don't love it. I'm choosing steak every time. Why? Well, I'm not a vegetarian, number one. God said it's okay to eat cows. I love steak. So you see what determines my decision? I hate that mess. I like this. I'm coming over here. I would choose steak every time. I want nothing to do with this stuff. If you love kale, I'm sorry. If, if this is getting you in trouble with your kids because you're forcing kale down their throat, that's your sin. I mean, that's your, that, <laughs> that's your problem. Not all parents are smiling at me right now. But see, I'm choosing. My will is engaged. I'm making a choice. I'm just choosing what I love. Like Jonathan Edwards said, we always choose according to the strongest inclination of our heart. We're responsible. We make choices. We're responsible for them. But apart from grace, switch that. Oh, I hate to do this. But I'm going to put, let's make this sin and this God and grace. Now, forget I ever said anything about kale positive. But I'm born choosing why do I go towards sin? Because I love, I'm born gravitating that way. And I, the reason I don't go God's way is because I don't love Him when I'm born into this world. Now I will use Him. I will use God to serve my agenda. I'll let Him give me a ticket to heaven. I might even walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hand. But I don't want Him ruling my life. So much evangelism is not really evangelism. When I just make Jesus a ticket into heaven and that's the extent of the gospel, and if you'll come talk to me, I'll guarantee you you're in and put you on a, a report so that my baptism numbers are way up for the denomination, which we don't have a denomination right now. But see, we're born loving self and hating God. And before you say, I don't feel like I hate God, doesn't matter. We hate God in our choices. We reject Him for our own way. We're born loving self and rejecting God in His ways. We only choose God if His ways serve our desires. But we won't repent and trust Christ. Really, turn from sin and self and to God in His ways. 180 of the soul. Go from rebelling against Him to receiving and trusting Him. We're born dead in sin. We're born with a bondage of the will. We're born loving sin and hating righteousness unless righteousness serves our purpose. We're born denying God and following self. We're unable to choose good because we don't love good. And we can't change that. 
We can't change that. We might be religious seeking to impress God or we might just go and just run off the other end of the reservation. But both ways is rejecting God. We can't change our heart. We are unable to overcome that love of unrighteousness apart from God doing something in us. We're unable to come to Jesus because we won't come to Jesus. We don't love Him. R.C. Sproul says if you have any true love in your heart for Jesus Christ, God did that. That's a work of grace. So what we need is a change of the core of our being. We're born into this world needing a new heart. A real heart. A spiritual heart. And that's exactly what God promises to do. Look what He promised through Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He goes on to talk about so that you will love Me and follow Me. We're born since the fall with a fallen heart that runs from God. Religiously and irreligiously. God promised to give us a new heart. Promised it to Israel. We're grafted in as Gentiles through, through them. Fulfilled in Christ. The gospel is preached. And in the context of the gospel preached. Life. New heart. Therefore, response. R.C. Sproul says this. So what is required for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Is not simply some small adjustments or behavioral modifications. But nothing less than renovation from the inside. We need to be regenerated. We need to be made over. We need to be quickened by the power of the Spirit. The only way in which a person can escape this radical situation is by the Holy Spirit's changing the core. The heart. We need a change of core. We need regeneration. See, if you've come to faith in Jesus, it's because God did a heart transplant on you through the preaching of the gospel. Lydia came to faith because God, quote, opened her heart. He gave her a new heart, a heart that loved Christ. Not perfectly yet. She's not glorified, but one that. His work of grace, because of His work of grace, would repent and turn and trust in Jesus and hope in Him and nothing else. See, the Spirit changes your soul, gives you a new mind, a new heart to love God, to trust Christ, and to follow freely. Behind all believing in Christ lies the miracle of God's regenerating grace. Really what we're talking what happened to Lydia is what we call irresistible grace. But I don't want to start there because what she what had to be overcome in Lydia's life was total depravity and that's true for all of us and if you get if you own what the Bible says about us the way we're born in our natural state the rest you won't struggle with the rest of reformed theology. It just follows. Because there's no provenient grace. Wasn't any here. There's no, right? It's God through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit's at work to take us from death to life. 
That's what he did for Lydia. He opened her heart. He did heart surgery on her. He gave her a new heart so that she gave heed to, paid attention to, responded to, believed the gospel. She believed what Paul was preaching. She went from fear to fears relieved. She saw her lost condition in need of a Savior. Saw that Savior being Jesus. And she turned and trusted Him. Because the Gospel was preached to her. What does Paul say about the Gospel in Romans 1? That it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Jew first and then the Gentile. Why? Because the Spirit attends the preaching of the Gospel. Doing heart transplants so that people will turn and trust in Christ. Faith is a fruit Repentance and faith are fruits of regeneration, of getting a new heart. They're fruits of God's work in our lives. What is the gospel? I dare not skip that. The gospel is try hard, be good enough, do everything you can, and God will make up the rest and accept you into heaven. If you're saying amen to that, you have a problem. It's a heart problem. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is this. Christ. Jesus. Lived for us. Fulfilling all righteousness. Keeping God's law that we have broken. He died to pay our penalty. See, we deserve condemnation and wrath because we have broken His law. We have been born not loving Him, but loving self and using Him and walking in ways that don't glorify Him. We deserve rejection and wrath and condemnation. Jesus came not only to live a righteous life, to give that to us whom by God's grace we believe, but to pay the penalty for our sin. And on the cross He said, It is finished. So Jesus took 100% of the wrath due His children, His brothers, His sisters, the ones He died for on the cross. He, he purchased a full and free salvation for them that would be effective, not just a maybe. And He was raised the third day from the grave, proving it's all true. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. The Gospel is true. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day. And He gives us salvation as a free gift. So you don't have to be good enough to earn it. You can't. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. I don't care how much money you give to a church or whatever or Bible reading you do. Or what. That's not making you right with God. That should be in a response of love to God because He's saved you. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day. And as the Philippian jailer, we will see. Corey will probably preach that. Pray for him. What must I do to be saved? What was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So have you come to fear your lost condition and the wrath do you? And have you turned and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone? I pray so. If not today, repent 
and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you did that, it's because God was at work in you and giving you a new heart. He gets the glory, not us. It's not because we're smart enough or wise enough or whatever. Look at the, the picture. I've got another picture of the redeemed heart or regenerated heart. We start here. We're born here. But then through the preaching of the gospel, God gives us life and brings us to faith. Regeneration. New birth. You've heard Jesus talk about that in chapter 3. So now this is true of the believer. We're growing in grace. We'll be glorified when He returns or we pass from this life. But the new believer has an enlightened mind by the gospel and God's truth. He has a renewed conscience. He has a transformed will and now godly passions and desires. So if you claim to believe in Jesus, but this really more describes you, you don't want to talk because God gives a new heart. What does He say? If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. We go from not loving God to loving God by a work of His grace. And our sin starts to grieve us. Not that we don't sin, but it grieves us and we confess it and we want to be free of it. And we're striving, like Peter said, make every effort. Why did God give Lydia a new heart? Because she was prettier or better or richer or... Mm -mm. I don't have all the answers to that because the only answer I'm given in Ephesians 1 is to the praise of His glorious grace. It's in line with His purpose and we can trust Him and know that He does right. Read Ephesians 1, 3 to 10 as homework. Listen, I know, I'll confess, I did when I first heard it. We often struggle with the doctrine of election, don't we? We do. You know, one of the reasons we do is we look straight at it. We look straight at it. And we rationalize. But I'm telling you this morning, if you start not there, but with total depravity, and see how sinful we are, and what, how enslaved to sin we are when we're born in this life, if you start there, then you'll know that His choice of us, His salvation of us, has nothing to do with us. We can't offer anything good to God the way we're born. It couldn't be based on us, or we'd never be saved. So it has to be based on Him and His grace. But if you get total depravity, if you don't look straight at election, but if you look through total depravity, see, everything else follows. If you get the first one, and I'm not a huge fan of the flower tulip because I, like R.C. Sproul, would rename a lot of the things, like radical corruption instead of total depravity. I think that communicates better. But if you start there and you get that, the rest of it follows. Because you go from there to unconditional election. In other words, there was no condition in me that caused God to choose me. There couldn't be because total depravity is true. Okay, here's the one we all struggle with. Limited atonement. Don't you dare limit anything about Jesus. It's not talking about the value of His death. It's talking about the purpose of it. The, the eff eff efficacy of it. The intent of it. What the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, God gave a people to His Son. His Son came and lived for them, died for them, and was raised from the grave because they are sinful and can't save themselves. Since we have nothing to ingratiate us to God, election has to be only based on His grace. It can't be based on us. Because we don't have anything good to offer. And then when you move on down the line to the L, or what I would make the P, I messed up the flower completely. But particular redemption. Christ came to die for a people. 
and to make their salvation sure, not a maybe. There were no doubt that Lydia was going to come to faith that day. Because the Spirit was going to apply to her heart the gospel and the salvation that had been purchased for her by Christ. Irresistible grace. That's where we are really in this text that God changes us so that we come to faith in Christ. We don't drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. Once He gives us a new heart, we willfully turn. We see the truth for the first time. And we turn and trust in Jesus. And then the P, perseverance of the saints, is simply God finishes what He started. He will take His children all the way home. All of that is meant not to give us theological arguments, and discuss, but to give us security in Christ and to root all of our salvation in Him. So we started talking about total depravity. We see the truth of the other segments of what we called Reformed Theology of Salvation. Unconditional election. Lydia was chosen before the foundation of the world. Just like you are if you're believing in Christ. Well, what about them? I don't know. See, the rest of these ladies, just because Lydia came to faith that day, it doesn't mean they were not elect. It just wasn't their day. I don't know who is. I am to preach the gospel to all of you and to offer Christ to all of you. And to trust God to be at work in His time, in your heart. And if you're concerned about that, that probably means He's at work in you. Turn today and trust in Christ. Look through depravity through the truth of God's Word and what Jesus teaches, but through depravity and the rest will make sense. See, God opened Lydia's heart through the preaching of the Gospel. He brought His daughter home by His Spirit, working with His Word, telling her about His Son who was her Savior. She became a follower of Christ. And as we'll see, there was a church planted and meeting in her home. Her heart was changed. And I'll just end with saying, how about your heart? Don't worry about whether you're elect or not elect or all these other side questions. Do you love God? Do you love Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you hoping in Him and Him alone? If that's true, He did that. And there's a lot of mystery in sovereignty and responsibility. They're all true. They're both true. And to such an extent, we, like I said earlier, we make choices based on what we love to such an extent that God commands everyone to repent. Read the end of, John, of Acts 17. We'll get there. How is your heart? Is it still dead, deceived, self-centered? Maybe even religious like Lydia? I mean, after all, you're here. Bottom line, do you love Jesus and want to live for Him? Are you trusting Him alone for your salvation? In other words, has God opened your heart? Has He done heart surgery on you? If you are believing the gospel, loving and trusting Jesus, He has done surgery on you. Rejoice. If you are not, repent and trust Jesus. God is the one who does the heart surgery that counts. He did it for Lydia. He's done it for all of us who are trusting Him. And He'll do it for you. And has done it in you if you will turn and trust in Jesus. Focus on Him. Rest in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your work of grace in our lives. May it make us humble. Humble 
pliable, joyful, loving you. Help us to be mostly asking the question, why me? <laughs> I know there's nothing in me that would bring anything from you except condemnation. Amazing grace. We sang it. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Lord, I pray for any in this building, young or old, or anything in between who are not trusting and resting in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray for all of us who are trusting in Christ. Some of us struggle with assurance. And I pray for comfort and confirmation in all of your children. Some of us presume, <laughs> help us not to do that, but help us to give you glory. Help us to rest in you and rejoice in you. And may your grace fuel love in us that causes us to love you growingly with a goal of loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That causes us to love our neighbor as ourself and be gospel light and witnesses to them. That causes us to love one another the way Christ has loved us. Thank you for changing our heart. Thank you for bringing us to faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sacrificing yourself to save sinful rebels such as I. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.